Welcome to Beastmeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program, where we put it all together for you. Beastmeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today's episode is the first of a three-part series on eating disorder advocacy and policy. And today we're starting with the basics of lawmaking. And here to help us walk through this process is Katrina Velasquez. Katrina is an attorney and a government relations leader who helps to advance and pass legislation in the U.S. Congress. She's the founder and managing principal of a public policy firm called Center Road Solutions and a co-chair of the Health Policy Committee of the Mental Health Liaison Group Coalition. Katrina's firm, Center Road Solutions, works with the Eating Disorders Coalition, which the EMILY program is part of, to advance eating disorders as a public health priority on Capitol Hill. And among Katrina's many legislative achievements is her work in helping pass the first ever eating disorders legislation, the Anna Weston Act, within the 21st Century Cures Act. So clearly we are in good company today for a conversation about lawmaking and the legislative process in action. Thank you for joining us, Katrina. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, so many of us have maybe this general understanding of what Congress is. We know there's the legislative branch of the federal government is the one that makes the nation's laws the one that represents the American people. But I think fewer of us probably know how Congress actually does this. So let's explore the process of how laws actually come to be. Mm-hmm. Help us navigate the basic steps. We, we begin with an idea, like who comes up with bills? Where do they come from? How does that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, despite what you may have heard on TV, I would say about a quarter of the bills that come up are actually from members of Congress or senators. About 75% of the other bills come from issues that public interest groups like the Eating Disorders Coalition um, or other companies will bring to the attention of their members or Congress or senators. So that's really how we often see it start is, is really with groups like the EDC um, really highlighting issues that they are seeing and bringing it to the attention of members of Congress. How do you, um, do all issues require legislation? Are there things that can get done without having to have a law? Yeah, so if it's something we have what's called statutory law, and then there's also regulatory law. So, for example, smaller things um, can actually happen under the umbrella of a statutory law and done through the regulatory process. So these are the federal agencies that particularly now you're hearing about regularly, like the CDC, NIH, HHS, et cetera. Um, they actually have the ability to pass their own regulatory laws under an umbrella of a bigger law. A great example of this for the eating disorders community was through the Anna Weston Act, which passed that umbrella law, the Center for Eating Disorders. Um, was actually created, which was $3.7 billion over a five-year period for a center of excellence for eating disorders. Absolutely. That was terrific. Okay. So we have this idea and we figure out what we want to do. It, it either needs to be a, a through the whole legislative process or a statutory law. So it's drafted and introduced as a bill. So we go from an idea to a bill. Mm-hmm. What What guidelines have to be followed? Like how do you find somebody to take that bill through the legislative process uh, because it needs the senators and representatives to do that part. So how does that work? How do you take the idea and then get it into a bill and get it going? 
Yeah, there's a couple of components to it. So when you have an idea, typically we, it's actually better to have an idea plus drafted legislation to begin the process as you are looking for someone in Congress to lead a bill. Um, then it requires a bit of strategy. So, you know, we have tons of members of Congress. Um, we have a hundred senators. And while they're all really, really special, if they sit on a committee of jurisdiction that oversees the bill that you're trying to get introduced, um, that's actually where you'll want to target, where you'll want to look to is who's on the committee of jurisdiction. Um, and if you actually have any connections to a member of Congress there, and then you go to them about introducing that piece of legislation. And how do you know, like, my bill, the idea I have for my bill is around eating disorders. How do I know what the committee of jurisdiction is? Say more about that. What does that mean? And yeah. how would I know who to go to, to who to target? Yeah. So what's interesting is the committees of jurisdiction are divided upon what federal agency a law would go through. For example, the Anna Weston Act, the vast majority of those provisions were under HHS, the Health and Human Services Department. So then what you do, since you found that department that it's under, then what you'll do is you'll look to the committees. They're all publicly available, and you can actually identify who that is. So on the House of Representatives, that's the Energy and Commerce Committee. On the Senate, that is the Senate Health Committee. So it's really based on the federal agency that it runs through. Okay, that makes sense. So so you just knock on their door and say, hello, lawmaker, <laughs> I'd like you to take my bill and make it law. Like, how does that conversation happen? How do you do that? Yeah, so it, it, it is it is quite a ramp up process before you even get to that point where you're taking the bill and asking someone to lead it. So after you come with this idea, you've drafted some draft legislation, um, oftentimes, you'll have communications collateral that will go with it. Then you strategize. So usually, for example, at the EDC, we'll look to see where we have a lot of really strong, super eating disorder advocates. So for example, Minnesota, where the EMILY program is, we have fantastic advocates there. If I have something that needs to go through funding, I will almost always go to Congresswoman McCollum. Um, from Minnesota, because I know I have a strong advocate base there, they'll be able to get on the phone and, and talk to her as well, in, in addition to us presenting her something. Okay, so we brought the idea, made it a bill, and now it has to go to this committee review. Mm -hmm. So committees are like everybody in Congress gets assigned to different committees. Mm -hmm. How does that work in terms of how do they get assigned to the committee? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what role can the public play at that point in the committee? What happens like if the committee doesn't like it? How does that work? Say more about what happens in the committee once you've gotten the attention of somebody who sits on that. Yeah, yeah. So to start how members of Congress even get on committee, it's very, very political. So what the leaders of the House and the Senate will do when a new Congress starts, so that's when, for, for example, in the House, that's at the beginning of of um, after the election year. So what they'll do is they'll look at everyone's congressional districts and say, where where might you have priorities? So for example, say you have a military base in your congressional district, you'll probably want to try to be fighting to be on the Armed Services Committee um, because that is something big in your district. So that's really it's all a political back and forth. We always hear that if 
a member of Congress makes a leader in their party upset, usually they are put on a committee that in no way will help their congressional district. Um, this is very common. And then ironically, the following election year, we often see them booted out because they didn't really get anything done. So that's really the first step on how they even get on committee. Going back to when a bill is officially introduced, what happens, um, you really need to start gaining more support, both with members of Congress who sit on the committee, but as well as members of Congress who sit off the committee. So, for example, the Energy and Commerce Committee right now, to bring a bill to the Health Subcommittee, they want to see a minimum of 10 bipartisan members on Energy and Commerce Committee before they'll even consider bringing it for what we call a hearing. So that's, that's another component. Additionally, if there is kind of a national public emergency or a really a lot of public attention around something, say National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, there'll be more attention to having a committee hearing during that time period versus just another regular time period. Okay, so they can attach it to that. Mm-hmm. That uh, I would imagine make it sort of fit nicely and seem like they're addressing a, an important need. Mm-hmm. So with the so with your your firm and your team, what's the process to get connected to those offices? So at the the EDC, we've spent a lot of time as advocates walking through the halls of Congress, which are really mm-hmm. you know office buildings full of offices where the senators and representatives and their staff do their work. Mm-hmm. But what does it take to to get a hold of those people in those offices? How does that work? Um, how does it work for you and your team where this is your like full-time job to do this? Mm-hmm. And then how would it work for just a average American citizen to get a hold of somebody in one of those offices? Yeah, absolutely. So when we identify an office that we would like to have co-sponsor a piece of legislation, Really, we, we shoot them an email and we ask to set up a meeting. What's interesting is that we have all of these congressional staffers to help their members of Congress with specific issues. So typically we'll be emailing the health legislative assistant. We have a database that we pay for on Political Pro where we have access to all of this information on who manages what. So we'll set up the meeting with them. We'll go in, um, we'll pitch the meeting, walk through all the details. And really, every single time we go into the meeting, we always have to highlight why it affects their congressional district or for senators, why it specifically affects their state. For us as, as lobbyists, um, that's really the most important thing is why does it affect them versus the national? So then after that, that's just really the tip of the iceberg. So after the meeting ends, really the follow-up is where all the action happens. So we follow up with information, and then we actually will connect with our grassroots base. Um, if we have a number of advocates, we'll have the advocates make calls or send emails to that office to really reinforce what we just pitched. Or if we have leaders in the community, like the EMILY program or the Eating Disorders Alliance of Iowa, etc., we'll actually have them write letters to that member of Congress to encourage them to co-sponsor. On the other side, for, for everyone who's, who's what we call a constituent, that is someone who votes for someone that is in a congressional district, um, the constituent side is a little different, where you are able to pick up the phone at any time and you can call your congressman or congresswoman and say, hey, who handles these issues? And they'll say, oh, you know, Sherry Lou handles these issues. 
here's her contact information. You have the opportunity, you can email them directly, or you can connect with the EDC and we'll help to connect you in and set up a phone call um, if it would be helpful. So, so you as a constituent, you have a lot more power. We also urge our, our advocates to our constituents, um, your members of Congress and senators actually have town halls, especially now during this COVID stay at home period. So going onto your town halls and speaking up about an issue, asking them about their opinions, um, really adds a lot of pressure to them to sign onto a bill. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think. I mean, I think we we maybe sometimes forget that, uh, and and I even have to remind myself of this that for in the House of Representatives or the House, the people we elect represent just that district, like just one part of the state. Mm-hmm. Versus in the Senate, they represent everybody in the state. And so it it really is a much more localized approach in the House and a and a bit more statewide approach in the Senate. Mm-hmm. The power of your voice can be really strong if you're in that House members district because they're mm-hmm. they're there to serve you. They're they're really there to collectively serve the country through their their district, which is something that sometimes I even forget. Like they're just there and they're thinking about the whole country, but really they're thinking about the people they represent in the state where they came from mm-hmm. and making them happy getting done the things that that district wants to happen. Mm-hmm. Just worth remembering that, that, that we have I mean, as individuals, we have, we still have such uh, a voice that we can have some, some influence on that. Um, paint us a picture for, for somebody who hasn't been to a, a congressional office in Washington, DC, that can sound really overwhelming. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, how could I ever walk into one of those offices? What would that look like? How would I get in the building? Isn't there a bunch of screening and can I go in? And like, walk us through, like, what's it like to go into a house office building and have a meeting? You know, describe it as if you're imagining someone's never done that and had no idea how that would work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It definitely feels very intimidating, but it's actually pretty simple. Um, so after you have your meeting scheduled, for example, if you attend an EDC Advocacy Day, we'll schedule your meeting for you. Um, all of the House and Senate offices, they're open to the public. And so what you do, you go through security. It's a basic metal detector security check. Um, you find the office where you're going to the meeting. You ask for the staffer. And then you literally will sit down oftentimes in the member of Congress's office or even somewhere else. And then you just start talking. You know, why I would say it's extra not intimidating is that you have to keep in mind the majority of these congressional staffers are young. They're typically between the ages of 22 and 35 years old. On the House side, they're, they're more on the younger end, so 22 to 28 years old. I've already aged out of the House. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're young. They're young faces. They've had experiences oftentimes just like you if you're on the younger side. Um, and you're just talking to them and really... You know, your job as an advocate is to make this issue human, right? We talk to them as lobbyists on the policy side, so they get into all the details. But your issue is to really bring it home. How has it affected your life? How has it changed things in your congressional district? Um, and you just have a conversation for 30 minutes or less, and then you leave, and that's it. Yeah. So I remember the first time I went to Washington, D.C. to advocate, and I, I was thinking it was going to be 
super formal and it would just be, you know, there'd be lots of rules and there would be lots of, you know, you can't go here, you can go here. And it's really, it's really easy if you can, you know, mm -hmm. even making a phone call, it's really easy. The person who's going to answer the phone is somebody who's has this, you know, great position that is interested in, in politics. And they're there, like literally sitting there to take your phone call uh, and keep track of how many people care. What, um, what kind of like, to get somebody to, to co-sponsor a bill or to, you know, sign on that, yes, I support this bill as a, a representative or a, or a senator, what kind of, like, how much do they have to hear about it? Do they need, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of people to say they care about it? Do they need one person to say they care about it? How, how do they know if they should care about it? Yeah, so every office is a bit different. However, what I would say is for the House of Representatives, for that a member of Congress, Typically, it takes about 10 to 30 different constituents calling them. And, and they actually track every time you call or send an email. Um, the more personalized, the better. On the Senate side, um, it takes a bit more. Because um, remember, the Senate's a lot bigger. I would say we're talking the hundreds. So maybe like 150 um, people from their state calling or writing them on this particular issue. And then if you're a leader in your community, actually sending like a letter directly to someone or an email directly to someone that actually even holds even more weight. So it may take even less than that. That's incredible. I think those numbers always are always just so stunning when I think about it, like 30 people. Okay. I could find 29 other people mm -hmm. that I could talk to about something I really care about. And particularly in, you know, in an eating disorder program, like family program, I can find 29 other people that work there. And even across the country because we have different locations, I can get 29 people to call four different offices or 10 different offices that mm -hmm. that's pretty doable. If we cared about something, we could find mm -hmm. 30 friends to join us in that or just people and explain why we care. So I, I think it's really cool to know. It takes probably a lot less than people think it takes to get the attention of our elected representatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's, okay, let's assume that, you know, in the perfect world, it's going so well. We're getting sign-ons. People are saying, yes, I'll help co-sponsor. What's the good case scenario? Like you said earlier that it's really helpful to have bipartisan support when you're bringing it to a committee. How does that work? How do you get some, some Dems and some Republicans on that bill? How do you navigate that? Is that easy? Is it challenging? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the kind of the rule of thumb is that um, the three things to pass legislation are politics, policy, and procedure. Politics always rules everything. Um, having a good policy, that's going to help you to bring on more um, congressmen on both sides of the aisle. Um, and then procedure is actually knowing how to process things through. So the thing is, is that politics, really what that is, is that's timing. Is it the right timing to pass something? So, for example, there's a ton of really wonderful pieces of legislation out there right now, but as we are in the current pandemic, it's not the right time. So we won't see it pass um, unless it has a very direct connection. So, yeah, the process, it, it can be it can be a schluck. You know, for example, if you are not in the right timing, really the idea is to keep building co-sponsorship. There was a, an old rule that if half of the House of Representatives co-sponsored a bill, they would automatically bring it to the floor. So there are specific things in there. Um, it's not always held true, but, but really just keeping the build up support while you're in that waiting period. 
And then on the committee side, to be adding pressure, to be having them bring it for a hearing, and then what we call a markup. And in addition to that, usually what we do is we try to find a bigger piece of legislation. Um, we call this a moving vehicle. So, you know, on eating disorders legislation, as there's a lot of other mental health and substance use disorders, typically we try to find a bigger mental health piece of legislation to attach our eating disorder legislation to it. Because then that gives it a higher chance of getting passed into law. So typically, for example, the Anna Weston Act, if you looked it up, it doesn't say that it was passed, but it was passed because it was included within the 21st Century Cures Act. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so you said if you have, you know, maybe in that example, half the house to support it goes to the floor. How does a bill get to the floor? So what has to happen in, in committee? And then how does it sort of magically, in my world, it just magically shows up on the floor? Uh, how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. So say we're going through normal order. Um, it would first start in committee. So typically they try to do a hearing on the issue and then they'll create a bill that we call a chairman's mark. Um, and they do a markup. And so the markup is where the committee discusses it, adds an amendment, and then they'll take a vote within that committee. Once that committee vote is done and say it does pass through, then it will be sent to, for example, Speaker Pelosi's office um, and, and uh, Hoyer's office for consider for a floor vote. That's where we get into the politics. The politics is tying. Is, is Speaker Pelosi going to give something time on the floor? Is Leader Mitch McConnell going to give something time on the floor? Um, that's where things can get stuck for a while. So um, for 21st Century Cures Act, um, that was passed through committee months upon months before it actually went to the Senate floor. It was all based on politics. So that was an election year. And so it was passed after elections were over. So to get something on the floor is really a leadership decision. And so back to committees for a second. Committee can have a hearing on it. What does a hearing look like in a committee? It, you know, hearing sounds like a legal proceedings that there'd be mm. witnesses and experts. What, what does that look like in a in a congressional committee? Yeah, you know, it used to be more formal. The 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 gentlemen's agreement, so to say, of of the eighties and before has has since gone out the window. So typically, what a hearing will look like is you'll have about three to five people on a panel. Um, if it's a very big issue, they actually will have different sections of a hearing where they'll have three to five people, then they switch, et cetera. On the hearing, then you'll have all of the members of the committee. They'll be sitting around um, and they're allowed to ask questions after you'll hear the panelists speak. Um, and those questions who's allowed to have them is based upon seniority. So if you are more senior on that committee, you get to ask your questions first. And that's really how the process goes. If you're more junior on a committee, say this is your first year being an election um, and you are not AOC, who's, who's um, very publicly known, sometimes you don't even get to ask your question. So then what you do as a member of Congress is you'll actually submit it, a question for the record. And then that panelist will be required to actually send you a written response to that question after the hearing. And does the work that you do... Um, through Center Road, are you ever able to work with the co-sponsors or the the leaders of the legislation that we're interested in to get questions submitted? Can we have an influence on a question that might get asked during a hearing? Absolutely, absolutely. So we track 
um, committee hearings every single day. Um, we, we have um, one of our staff send us a report on which hearings are coming. And if it is a, a hearing that has some relation to a bill we're working on, we'll go back to our leads on a bill if they sit on committee, and we actually draft the questions for them. Oftentimes, what you're hearing is, is drafted by people like me. Um, maybe they tweak it, they add a word or two, um, but but I always laugh. I'm like, ah, I love that. <laughs> so that's really how that works. Um, and then every now and then, the members will have their own questions that their staff or themselves will ask. Okay. So yes, we do we do influence that process. That's great. So we let's assume in our in our dream process, right? We've you know taken our idea, we got a bill drafted, we got a bunch of great support. It went through committee. It got. What's the voted out of committee? What is what does that mean? Mm. And then what happens next? How do we get it to how do we get it to be a law? Because it doesn't just become a law because the committee likes it. What has to happen next to make that happen? Yeah, yeah. So voted out of committee, that goes back to that markup process I was telling you about where they have a bill. Um, that is a majority vote in committee. Each committee has a different number that is required for majority vote. So each committee actually has their own rules on how many you need to be passed through committee. So once it goes through committee, say the House picks it up and they vote on the floor, that's unfortunately not the end of it. Then you have to make sure the other chamber, the Senate, for example, they have to make sure that it goes to them and that they vote on. So it's a little bit different. So say, Say the House will pass one bill and it goes to the Senate. The Senate doesn't actually have to run that through a committee. They can actually pick that up on the Senate floor, which oftentimes they do. But oftentimes they'll add in amendments. So they'll add in changes to it, particularly now with the House being Democrat, Republican being uh, Senate. They'll add changes to it. And then say the Senate votes on that on the Senate floor. It actually has to go back to the House since it had changes, for them to vote on it one more time um, to be able to acknowledge those changes. So say those all are passed, House, Senate, everyone agrees on it, then it goes to the president's desk to sign it into law. Um, the president can veto it, but then if it is vetoed, it will go back to the Senate um, where where they will be able to actually overturn that veto if they do desire to. So... I know that the the work we've done in the EDC often will have a House bill and then a companion Senate bill. So from a strategy perspective, does that help to minimize the things that that the Senate might add to a bill that if you have the same, is it exactly the same bill that goes through the House and goes through the Senate or could it be slightly different? Tell us a little bit about that idea of having a House bill and a Senate bill that are about the same thing. Yeah, there's a lot of benefit in having a House bill and a bill that are pretty similar. Typically, you'll see a House bill introduced first, um, and then the Senate will get it, and they will have their tweaks that they want to add to it. So that's why you'll you'll almost always you'll see them be a little bit different. But there's a big strategic advantage to having a Senate bill. If, for example, something passes the House, but then there's no Senate bill at all, oftentimes you know Leader McConnell just won't even pick it up. Um, because there is no Senate attention to it. So that's why it is very important to have both a House and Senate bill that are similar. If they happen to be at the same time, um, we actually go into what is called conferencing. That is where they select certain members of the House and Senate to negotiate the differences. 
Um, we see this often with appropriations bills. These are the funding bills where the House will have one thing, Senate will have another, and they're negotiating out those differences. And so on average, that whole process from I got an idea, I got it to be, I got somebody to believe in my idea. So we wrote a bill and now it has sponsorship and then it goes to a committee and they've liked it. And then they get it to the floor and it gets voted on and magically gets voted on in both chambers. And now it's going to be a law. How long does that take on average? Hi. Um, so it varies, right? You know, the fastest we've ever passed a bill from when we started drafting it to passing was eight months. The longest, which has not been with me, but the longest I've seen a bill that did end up being passed was actually mental health parity. That took about 20 years. So it really, it really varies. Um, and I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, as an advocate is that, unfortunately, it's not typically a fast thing. Um, like a bill that I passed that, um, passed in eight months, um, that was a school safety bill. So really, as we saw the Parkland tragedy, there was just a lot of public uproar. So I think that's the thing to keep in mind is that it really can vary, but you really need to stick in there for the long haul because that's what making change takes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it depends on the timing, right? Because of the, the, Mm-hmm. Say a little bit about the sessions of Congress. There's the, you know, the hundred and something session of Congress. So you might get something going really great. And then, oh, now we have an election and we have a whole new. So say a little bit about how that works if you're in that kind of bridge time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So elections can be great. They can also be awful for bills. Um, so, you know, every time a new election happens and a new Congress starts, you actually have to reintroduce all of your bills. So issues that we've had in the past is that, you know, as we saw a blue wave of the last election season, um, we saw a lot of moderate Republicans leaving. So we had to find new Republicans to lead a bill. That takes a lot of time. So so the process can be slowed. Um, and then it can also change. So if something did go through committee, maybe even pass the House, that doesn't just continue with the next Congress. You actually have to start the whole process over. If it did pass the House and whoever's, if Democrats are leading the House, um, oftentimes they can bring it immediately back to the floor in January. But again, it requires political pressure to make that happen. And give us a sense for how often, I mean, there's so many bills, right? Like how many bills might might be introduced in a, in a year and what percentage of those ever become a law? Yeah, yeah. So on average, um, looking at Congress period, so there's actually a two-year period, um, on average, we see between 10 to 12,000 bills introduced in Congress. Um, the amount that actually is passed is between 3 to 5% of those. So a very, very small amount is passed. What's interesting is I was looking at the data, this 116th Congress, where we're in right now, They've actually already had 13,000 bills introduced, um, and we're only an out a year and a half into this two-year period. So they've introduced a lot more bills than I've seen on average than in past Congresses. They've also had a lot less bills passed. They've only had about 1% of their bills passed into law. Wow. Yeah, so it starts to make sense when you think about, like, you hear in the news, uh, you know, 
senators or representatives are voting voting on bills they may not even have read the whole text of. Like, there's so many mm-hmm. things to read, which is why they need so many staffers to help them to know to be informed on things. It's a it's amazing. How many uh, mental health eating disorder related bills are in the works right now that you're aware of? Woohoo! Uh, that I would. There's hundreds. Honestly, there's hundreds. Um, and in both chambers, both the House and the Senate, the eating disorders community alone, I think we, I think we have four or five um, right now that are currently in. And then you have to remember, in the mental health community, they each have their own things. There's a depression organization. There's a depression bill out there. So there's definitely hundreds of them in just mental health alone. Yeah, and it helps to helps to do work together, speaking sort of to your work on the mental health liaison group that shows the power of, I imagine, the sort of power of collaboration on Capitol Hill that you could walk into offices and say, yep, we, we're really concerned about this bill, but it fits in with the things that other mental health groups are are concerned about so that we can really lean on our community to support each other. Does that happen a lot where somebody else might have a bill and they lean on the other mental health groups to say, hey, could you support this? I know it's not your main thing, but what do you think about supporting this with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We actually typically do um, letters of support from the mental health community within the mental health liaison group Um, because having that support of the larger community um, really does have a lot of push forward and moving something. So that's very common. As we were working on um, preventing the repeal of the ACA, um, we actually had meetings with leaders in Congress together with other groups, American Psychological Association, Psychiatric, NAMI. We all went in together to show a unified voice. Um, and I think that's a really important part, particularly with eating disorders policy, is that we do need a partner because we are part of a bigger mental health and substance use disorder system. That's terrific. So if somebody's listening to this, Katrina, they're thinking like, oh, I'm just one person. How would I have an impact on on something as giant as the legislative process? What would you say to that person in terms of the role they can play in getting a piece of legislation that's important to them passed? Yeah, like there's, you know, the power in one individual is, is astounding. Um, I think I have a couple of examples at hand. Kitty Weston, who um, developed the Anna Weston House. Um, and it's part of the Emily Program Foundation. Her voice and her name is known across Capitol Hill um, because she really got her story out there. Um, her battle that she experienced with her daughter um, raised a lot of public attention. Um, you would be surprised how many media outlets will pick up in your local media um, a battle that you're experiencing. And, and that power of really kind of raising your public profile really can make that huge difference. She, she helped to get us, Senator Klobuchar to lead us, Senator Klobuchar helped us to get across the finish line. Um, the recent EDC bill that was introduced, the Nutrition Care Act, um, we have um, the dietitian from Alaska. She definitely got us Senator Murkowski. She worked back and forth with us to answer all kinds of questions. She was on three different phone calls from us from Alaska to DC with the staff. Um, and she made that happen. And so I think that's what it is. Just being a voice, knowing your data, getting your name out there, and you really can have a huge difference. Absolutely. And the, in our next uh, part of this podcast series, we'll be talking to Chase Bannister, who's the president of the Eating Disorders Coalition. So I know Chase will talk more about how you can get 
uh, involved in EDC and easy ways to do that. Uh, so, Katrina, for sort of our last question for you, why why is eating disorder or mental health legislation important to you? Your firm does a lot in the mental health space. Yeah, I think you know, growing up and and obviously going through college, I had a number of friends who were affected, um, and I also have a number of family members who are affected by eating disorders. So, I personally saw saw the struggle that they faced um, on 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 all areas and all body types. Um, and then I think as a woman in general, just, you know, the issue of body image is something that's just so pervasive, especially with social media. So that really is, we are a firm that focuses on women and families. And so eating disorders, while it does affect both men and women, um, is something very attractive and, and why we are so passionate to work towards um, making change. That's great. Well, we certainly appreciate all the work that you do, and we appreciate you sharing your your wisdom and expertise with us today. I hope that our listeners were able to to learn uh, more about the process and sort of demystify some of those areas that are just seem so confusing when you're just reading about it in the newspaper or online or Mm -hmm. hearing about it on the news. So thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.